And when it comes to thinking about life, I want you to think right now about your life. Your life. I want you to think about your present situation right now. A lot of times we, you know, kind of have a roller coaster life. Things go better. Things get worse. I mean, it's part of life. I want you to think about this because we're in a series right now called Transformed. A series focused on the book of Philippians. And we learned over the past couple weeks that Paul, his life wasn't all that good. He found himself in prison for a couple years. And he's writing uh, these dear friends of his from prison. That's his life, the state of his life. How about yours? What surprise has come your way? What challenge are you facing right now? I want this desk and this kind of prison cell right now. I want you to think about how that might represent you in the spot you find yourself in right now. And I want you to listen to these words. I want you to ask yourself, you know what? Can I relate to this in any way? I came across the statement. Somebody wrote it. I couldn't figure out who. Uh, but let me just read you what they wrote and see if you relate to it in any way. He said, I'm tired because I'm overworked. The population of this country is 200 million. 84 million are retired. That leaves 116 million to do the work. There are 75 million in school, which leaves 41 million to do the work. Of this total, there are 22 million employed by the government. That leaves 19 million to do the work. Four million are in the armed forces, which leaves 15 million to do the work. And take from that total the 14,800,000 people who work for the state and city governments, and that leaves 200,000 to do the work. There are 188,000 in hospitals, so that leaves 12,000 to do the work. And now there are 11,998 people in prisons. That leaves just two people to do the work. You and me. And you're standing here reading this. No wonder I'm tired. You ever feel like the whole thing hinges on you because you're doing a whole lot of work. Where's everybody else in the midst of it? Well, I got to imagine that Paul felt like this, right? I mean, here he is. He's in his prison cell. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's writing these letters of encouragement. He's, he's penning these letters of, of really telling us what our faith should look like, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And other people are reading what he wrote. It's not all that hard. He is in the midst of this dungeon, this prison cell, writing to encourage others. And it must have felt like he was pretty alone. It must have felt like he was the only one doing the work, if you know what I'm talking about. In fact, as I was thinking about Paul... This past week, I couldn't help but think of a memory of my past. You know, we all have those from our childhood. And, uh, you know, there was a show that I used to watch with my family when I was growing up. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of trash on TV. But this was one of those, you know, highfalutin shows. I mean, one of those high-quality shows that I used to watch as a kid called Hee Haw. And, um, and in that show, I have to imagine, you know, if, if, if Paul had been alive when that show was on TV... And, uh, you know, if in his prison cell, of course, they were showing this show on TV and, and they would break into this chorus that they often broke into. I got to imagine, you know, Paul singing and joining along with them. How could he help himself? Remember the song? It goes like this. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Remember that one? Remember that one? 
Well, last night, I'm just telling you, the Saturday night service, they actually started joining in along with me. And then they added the O's, you know, gloom, despair, and agony. I mean, oh, they added all that last night. I was kind of counting on you this morning to help me out, but that's okay. Uh, But think about that. Isn't that like Paul? Wouldn't he have felt like that? Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, well, I'd have no luck at all, because look where I ended up. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. What are you caught in right now? What does your unexpected look like? Paul was facing the worst of it. And in the midst of this situation, because he had been transformed by joy, he responded by writing these words. Listen. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I don't know what you hear there, but I I don't hear him sounding tired. I don't see Paul focusing on his gloom and his agony. He doesn't drone on endlessly about his bad luck. And in the midst of this dire situation, Paul begins to teach us some lessons here. It applies to all of us. And the first is this, that we can know joy despite painful circumstances. We as Christians can know joy despite painful circumstances. Again, he's chained to a Roman guard some 800 miles away from his closest friends. But no hope really in sight for him. And he's focused on what? Progress. Results. The results that his chains serve in advancing the gospel. And last week we talked about the gospel, what this is. If somebody asked you what the gospel is, you could say, you know what? God, out of his love, saw us in our need. We were lost in our sin. And so he provided a solution. His own son, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came here out of his obedience and died on the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to. And he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven where he is waiting for us. And the reality is the good news of the gospel is that for every person who responds to Christ, who asks for forgiveness and follows him in their life, that they can become a son or a daughter of the Most High God adopted into God's family, forgiven, and viewed as beautiful in God's eyes. This is the good news of the gospel. And in Paul's mind, his present condition was worth it all. If his chains helped to advance the gospel, then bring on more chains, right? That's how he viewed it. Instead of seeing himself in the pits, Paul saw only possibilities. For example, there was the distinct possibility that the Roman guard he was chained to on that shift would see what he wrote or hear what he dictated. And then when the next shift came, the next person came, they would see what he wrote and hear what he dictated. And one guard after another would be exposed to his faith, be exposed to these beautiful letters that he was writing, and they would take this back to the barracks, and they would spread the gospel. And that's why Paul didn't feel jilted. He felt joy. In fact, his great joy transformed how he viewed almost everything. And you see, I think one of the reasons why is that Paul's joy was not rooted in the present so much. We get lost in the present. We get get focused on all the things around us in the present. 
His joy was not so much focused on the future, although it was there, and the hope that he had in Christ Jesus. But I'll tell you what, his hope was also very much rooted in the past. He knew God's word. He knew how God had worked through ages of time. Think about Joseph. Joseph had been sold into slavery, and God used this as an opportunity really to advance him and provide promotions and power. Think about the Israelites. They had escaped Egypt, of course, but now the Egyptian army was hunting them down with their backs against the water. God shows up. He parts the water for them, showing them what salvation looks like. And Jesus, well, he had been thrown to the cross for you and for me. He faced all that ridicule, and yet he rose from the grave on the third day so that we can know victory. And these reasons and so many more, as he looked to the past, gave Paul life. And they transformed the questions that he would ask of himself. How are you doing with your questions in the midst of your unexpected? What questions are you asking? See, we get lost in these questions sometimes because we're focused on the here and now. We say, well, why in the world did this happen to me? What did I do to ever deserve this, right? And what Paul is trying to teach us is to change the question. Instead of asking those things, ask this. How could my present circumstances be used to advance the gospel? The gospel. See, our delays can be opportunities right there before us. That's how Paul viewed things. And so Paul then continues to write. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And rejoice, and rejoice, and rejoice, he did. Even in the midst of the bad motivations going on around him. Think about this, for two years of time, the only place that Paul could rejoice was in prison. For two years of time, the only place he could preach the gospel was in a prison cell, and yet he continued to experience joy. And it's here he teaches us the second lesson, that we can know joy despite wrong motivations, the wrong motivations of others. In fact, many times when we live our lives and we see people around us using us, slandering us, trying to play themselves off in some way that isn't real, isn't true, it downright annoys us. And yet Paul, in the midst of this, he experienced joy. In fact, he talked about two groups of people. The first group he talked about were the bad motivation people. These were Christians who were preaching the gospel out of rivalry and envy. You see, before Paul showed up there in Rome, they were were getting a lot of people to follow them and listen to them. Crowds would gather around them and they loved the attention. And then Paul showed up in Rome and suddenly he becomes the man of the hour. He becomes the one that everyone is focusing on. And the result for these Christians then was that, yeah, they would share the gospel. But in order to earn bragging rights, that somehow they could win more converts than Paul. And if their actions somehow hurt him while he was in prison, they didn't care. 
And his response in this letter was, he didn't care. As long as the name of Christ was being advanced, he was celebrating. Didn't matter the motivation of others. Then he quickly, of course, talks about the good motivation people, the ones that, you know, they're not jealous of Paul. They're locking arms with Paul to advance the gospel. But for Paul, it didn't matter. He celebrated. It didn't matter if good motives were present or bad motives. Paul still threw a party. Why? Because Paul was not concerned about himself. He was concerned about spreading the gospel. In fact, if people had been messing with, you know what, the the message, well then Paul, he would have taken issue. But since they were only messing with him, the messenger, Paul took no issue at all. And he was able to have this mindset, this mindset that is so hard for us to grasp a hold of because he had mastered the art of letting go. Have you mastered the art of letting go? Letting go of the negative? Letting go of comparing yourself with others? Letting go of the excuses that we like to give ourselves? Letting go of human expectations placed on us by others or by ourselves? Letting go of demanding my rights? See, the only rights that Paul knew of was the rights that God gave him to represent Jesus and to advance the gospel. In fact, Paul knew that if he allowed bitterness to creep in, that very bitterness would force his joy out. Because at the core, bitterness is a thief, friends. It longs to rob you of any joy that's living inside of you. And Paul was going to leave no room for that. Are you? Are you leaving room for bitterness in your life? Do you lack joy in your Christian walk because bitterness is taking you for a walk? Well, someone once said, you're either getting bitter or you're getting better. And Paul chose the better option. See, Paul knew joy despite painful circumstances, joy despite wrong motivations. And now he continues to teach us by writing these remarkable words. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Oh, I, I deeply believe that. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is only gain. See, Paul had reached the point where he realized joy despite future status. Whether he live or whether he die, his life is all about Christ. 
In fact, when you take the time to, to clear the table in front of you, to clear your mind of all the things that like to occupy it, and you bring it down to these two essentials, life and death, I'll tell you what, everything else becomes crystal clear for you. As one person once wrote, they said, when a man knows he's going to be hanged in the morning, it concentrates his mind wonderfully on the essentials of life. See, Paul had no idea what would happen to him. And as each day began to look just like the last, and as the, the idea of being freed from his chains seemed uncertain, he set his hopes on the only one who could give him hope, Jesus Christ. And friends, in this situation, Paul focused not on what he might be able to do in his own strength, but on what God could do through him. And because of the power of Jesus Christ that lived inside of him, Paul knew that God would never allow him to come to a point in his life when he was turn his back on the cross, when he was turn his back on Jesus Christ. He knew that this would never happen to him despite his loneliness, despite his persecution, and despite his pain. Paul would never be ashamed of himself for turning his back on Jesus, no matter what. Friends, I think it's got to cause us to ask some questions. Is our relationship with Christ that strong? Is Christ enough for us, or do we think we need more? You see, Paul needed nothing more than his all-sufficient Savior. And that's why he boldly declared two things. He said, you know what, if I'm released, then Paul knew he would spread the gospel with even greater passion. But if he was condemned to death, Paul knew that he would bow and worship Christ with all his passion. It didn't matter. And that's why he said these two crucial words, for me. He's saying, you know, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it, what it looks like for these people who are preaching with bad motivations. I don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it. I don't know what it's like for you, but for me... I'm able to sit here in this prison cell and rejoice because for to me, it means to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Instead of being self-centered, Paul chose to be Christ-centered. To live is Christ. And what does that actually mean? To live is Christ. Well, I think when you take a look at Paul's writings in the New Testament, you get a pretty clear idea. To live is Christ means I derive my strength from Christ. I don't rely on my gifts, my past experience, what I'm feeling right now. I derive my strength from Christ. To live as Christ means that I seek the mind of Christ because if I start thinking like he thinks, it's going to change the way that I talk. It's going to change the way that I live. It's going to change the way that I love other people. To live as Christ means that I count all things worthless compared to Christ. And it means that I stop erecting these little idols alongside God's main throne. And I set them aside because they are worthless in the face of him. To live as Christ means that I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. Which means his shed blood on the cross covers me. And as a believer, when God the Father looks at me, he sees only Christ. And when he looks at me, he calls me beautiful and precious and prized. Because I'm covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is why I also rejoice in Christ. I find my joy in nothing else and no one else but Him. To live as Christ means I live for the glory of Christ, not for my glory, not for any other reason, but for Him. And ultimately, to live as Christ means I carry the cross of Christ. That every single day, I choose to die. 
I die to my sense of self-sufficiency. I die to any sense of comfort. Because I live with conviction. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact, I like how one version of the Bible states it beautifully. For living to me means simply Christ. And if I die, I should merely gain more of him. More of Jesus. Yet even as he writes these beautiful words, there are liabilities for Paul. You can sense him. I mean, he speaks these words so powerfully, and yet he's kind of got a wrestling match going on inside. And he writes these words, Philippians 1, verses 22 and 23. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I... I'm torn between the two. Have you ever seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof? He always talks about on this hand, and then on the other hand. He keeps having this conversation with himself. And this is what Paul is doing here. Saying, you know what? There are benefits to departing. There are benefits to departing, but on the other hand, there are benefits to remaining as well. And I'm torn between the two. And for Paul, in his mind, he's saying, you know, there's benefits of departing. I get to be with Christ. I get to be with him. I get to go home. I get to know more about Jesus in my life. I get to see Christ face to face. Beautiful. There's also benefits to remaining. I get to stay with those who need me right now. I get to bring some of these soldiers to faith in Christ. I get to help them grow in their spirituality and their growth in Christ and who he is. I get to be part of reaching the Gentile world for Jesus. Benefits on both sides. You ever been there? When you're trying to make a choice and you look at the options and they're all good, that's how Paul viewed things. And I'm sure in the midst of that, he found himself in prayer, trying to you know, hear from God regarding this whole thing. But as we take a look at this passage, we kind of get the clear idea here that God allowed him some wiggle room when it came to seeking after his own will regarding what to do. It seemed that Paul was allowed to cast the deciding vote because he writes the following. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul came to the point when he realized, you know what, the moment he was set free, when that would happen, that would be a pivotal moment in the life of his followers and the people he was writing to. Their faith would increase. They'd go out and share the gospel all the more. And so for Paul, he knew that if you're transformed by joy, that we have joy despite painful circumstances, joy despite wrong motivations, joy despite future status. And then from the outflow of all this joy, This beautiful joy, Paul issues us a final challenge. Listen carefully to these words. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Here Paul teaches us that when we're transformed by joy, we can also experience joy despite no future encouragement. No future encouragement. That's why he begins this section by saying, whatever happens, whatever happens, if I die, if I live, if I live and we never see each other again, whatever happens, make sure as Christians that you hold to your convictions no matter what. And he's trying to help him. He's saying, don't look at me. Don't rely upon me for your faith. Look to Christ. Because people will always disappoint us. And when they do, there goes our joy. People tell us one thing and then they do another. And when they do, there goes our joy. People say they're going to show up. And when they don't, well, then there goes our joy. See, when it comes to experiencing joy in our lives, many times we buy into this false notion that it's based on an external force somehow. You know, the things that happen to us, well, that will determine if we'll have joy. The things people say to us, the things people do for us. And Paul is trying to get them and, to and us to understand here that no one is responsible for our joy but us. Those who are transformed by joy must learn to stand on our own. We must learn not to be codependent. We must learn, of course, not to look to others for our sense of inner worth, for compliments that they can give us so somehow we can feel better. Paul's saying, you know what? Other people, they play a significant role in our lives. There comes a time when all that they have shown us and all that they have taught us must be implemented on our own as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's why in this section, Paul gives us Four critical outcomes of a Christian who's transformed by joy, who stands for their faith, even in the midst of a situation where they're receiving no encouragement at all. He's basically saying, when we are transformed by joy, we display conduct worthy of Christ and the gospel. We display conduct worthy of Christ and the gospel. And what does that conduct look like? What's the starting point? Well, it starts with humility. You know a humble person in your life? You probably know somebody who's living a joy-filled life. It starts with humility. Paul writes to the Ephesians, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble. Are you completely humble? How would your spouse describe you? The person you're dating right now. The people that know you best. Are you completely humble? Paul says it starts there. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So it starts with humility. And then when we are, when we are transformed by joy, we strive with others in a community of faith. And what does that striving look like? What are we striving for? Well, we're striving for unity. It starts with humility. We can have no unity without first knowing humility. And then Paul is basically saying, focus on the essentials. 
Don't let all the little things divide you, but strive together. Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So he says, be humble. Focus on unity. And he says, you know what? When you're transformed by joy, we're going to believe in Christ so deeply our convictions transform our actions. We're going to believe in him so deeply our convictions transform our actions. What does that look like? Paul gives us a visual picture here when he writes. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Five years ago, I went to uh, Israel and I boarded that uh, large boat on the Sea of Galilee. I've been on that boat, I think, four or five times now experience that over and over again. But on this particular occasion, a boat that's meant to fit at least 70 people or so, it was a beautiful day, a sunny day. Everything was great. And so we all boarded that boat. We had about 70 of us on that boat. And most of the people, they sat on the main deck. They had these white plastic chairs. You probably know what I'm talking about because you purchased them at Lowe's or Menards and you've got them on your back deck. Those white chairs, they're lined up in rows so there's about 50 people sitting there, and I decided, you know what, I actually want to see the water. And so I sat on the side of the boat where they had some seating there, and I was enjoying it. It was a beautiful, sunny day. And then, as typically will take place on the Sea of Galilee, and we read about it in the Gospels, suddenly the wind kicked up. And then I'll tell you what, within five minutes, the waves were so large. I mean, that boat was rocking something fierce. Water is now pouring into the boat. We're all getting wet. And as I'm sitting on the side of the boat, all these people sitting in these chairs, as the, as the boat would be turned this way, suddenly they'd be sliding over this way. And then the boat would go this way, and they'd be sliding over that way. And they're going this way, and then that way. And I was just sitting there laughing at them. And eventually they got out of their chairs and they realized, man, they're starting to get hurt as they collided with one another. And that's what it looks like we're all going to get hurt when we allow our faith to rely on the situations around us. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't be that kind of Christian. Be one who is steadfast. Don't let your life rock you. Don't let the wind and the waves rock your life. Stay steadfast. Focus on humility that leads to unity, that leads to a steadfast faith, a rock-solid faith that leads to the fourth dimension, commitment. That we suffer for Christ so willingly that we experience the fullness of hope. That we're willing to suffer for Him. I think many times in our culture we think suffering for Christ looks like, you know, like when the air conditioning breaks down in our home. That's suffering for Christ. When we get a flat tire on the side of the road. No, no, no. Paul's saying here that you believe in Christ so deeply, that he is so much the center for you, that you're willing to suffer for him. Paul writes, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 
It's talking about commitment here. The committed life. And everyone, every single one of us here, we want a life that matters, don't we? Everyone wants a life filled with passion, purpose, impact, and joy. That's what we all want. But the reality is so few Christians actually experience. Because we get caught up in the here and now. We get caught up in our own prison cell and the things that look so dark and ominous. We get caught up in the here and now and Paul's saying, don't live like that. How can God use your situation to impact others for the gospel? When you live like that, your life will be transformed by joy. He's trying to get us to understand the big idea here, and it's this, that we are transformed by joy when Christ is our joy. Nothing else and no one else, Christ is our joy. Is he your joy? Is he the center for you? When it comes to your life and our impending death somewhere down the road, do you say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is my joy. And the good news, friends, is that this Jesus Christ, who is our joy, who came 2,000 years ago and was born for us, is the same Jesus Christ who willingly went to the cross to be joy for us. And he's the same Jesus Christ who rose from the grave three days later to provide joy for us because he is our joy and he is our hope. And he is the same Jesus Christ who's coming back. He's coming back for his own. And so let's stand together and let's declare the name of Christ and the hope we have in him and the joy we have in him because we're transformed by joy when Christ is our joy.